between the ages of four to the first grade, you're excused to kids' club. Well, get your Bibles out and turn them to Matthew 5. We'll be in Matthew 5 through 7 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Red Pew Bible in front of you. You're always welcome to take one. And if, perchance, you have three of them in your trunk, you're always welcome to bring them back. Uh, we are in a series in the book of Matthew entitled, Follow Me, considering what it means to follow Jesus. And more specifically, what did it mean when Jesus said to his followers, follow me? What did he expect? What was he looking for? And what did they do in response? We started two weeks ago in Matthew 9, looking at the story of Matthew the tax collector, but more importantly, looking at Matthew, the guy who walked away from everything to become a disciple of Jesus Christ when he called him and said, follow me. We looked at the author of this gospel, Matthew. And then this last week, we turned to Matthew 4 and looked at the beginning of Jesus's ministry as he began to call disciples to himself first. Peter and Andrew and Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And what Jesus puts before his earliest disciples is this, follow me and I'm going to make something happen. Follow me and I will change you. Follow me and I will shape you. I will transform you. Follow me and I will make you like me. And I'll give you my purpose and you will fish for men. It's a tremendous picture that Jesus puts before these early disciples. Jesus saying, in following me, I've made you into something new. Stealing some of Paul's explanation from 2 Corinthians 5. That I've made you into a new creation. And as a new creation, I've given you a new identity and a new purpose. And as we saw last week, that following Jesus changes us. It gives us a purpose and it gives us a mission. Now, if we followed out chapter 4, after Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, and after he calls James and John, he goes then into Galilee, teaching and proclaiming the gospel and healing all kinds of disease. Chapter 4 then ends with lots of crowds gathering together to see Jesus, to see what he's going to say, to see what he's going to teach people who are attempting to follow Jesus. And that's where we're picking up this morning, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 1. This is what it says. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying. Now what comes next, these next three chapters, that is, chapters 5, 6, and 7, is commonly count called the Sermon on the Mount. And that's going to be our text this morning, all three chapters. Now, I gave some thought to just reading it to you. Like, it was good enough for Jesus, but I'm not. We're going to cover all three chapters in a single message. And if that seems too much for you, I'd argue a couple things. The first of one is this. Jesus took it in a single message. So we have that going for us. 
And in Jesus giving it in a single message, I would tell you that I think Jesus had a purpose in giving it to you as a single message. And that's because there's a single theme in it that we have to consider. And that if we miss the theme, if we look at the trees, we might well miss the woods. We might well miss exactly what it was Jesus was going for when we take time to pick it apart so carefully. While preparing for this message, I was reading Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Studies on the Sermon on the Mount. Dr. Lloyd-Jones is a phenomenal academic, phenomenal thinker. And while he was processing this, he writes a book. He writes, speaks 32 sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And in his introduction, he makes, basically argues that he wished he would have preached one. That's, that's not a bad place for, to stand on, so I, I'm going to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones here. This is what he says, making, helping to make that point in his first chapter. He says, the reason then why I believe it is important for us to take the sermon as a whole before we come to the details is this. Constant danger of missing the woods because of the trees. We are all of us ready to fix on certain particular statements and to concentrate on them at the expense of others. He would continue on a couple of pages later. The Sermon on the Mount, if I might use such a comparison, is like a great musical composition, a symphony if you like. Now the whole is greater than the collection of its parts. And we must never lose sight of its of this wholeness. I do not hesitate to say that. Unless we have understood and grasped the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, we cannot understand properly any one of its particular injunctions. And it is a phenomenal way of thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. Because if we break it up, if we start tearing it into little pieces, we start seeing it as a checklist. Do this don't do that. Think this way, don't think that way. Act this way, this way is bad. But when we take it as a whole, you start to see a bigger picture. Consider this for a moment. Jesus is gathering his disciples and all those who are seeking to follow him. And so far they've heard one message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus has substantiated that message. He legitimatized it by producing miracles so that, in fact, it would be obvious. The kingdom is at hand. And so now as Jesus gathers them together and begins to teach them, he lays out for them his teaching. And specifically, what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean? What does it look like? What does a follower look like? And it can seem like Jesus is giving quick takes on lots of different topics. But again, if you watch it carefully and you keep the context of his ministry, you'll see that he's building his disciples. You'll see a grander picture, and that's what we find here. Not a to-do list, but rather a picture of what his followers should look like, what they should be. And what they should do, but far more clearly, a transformed heart and a transformed life. Not what it looks like, but what it is. So let's dig in. We're going to skip around a little bit. We'll start in verse 3 where Jesus begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus begins with what is called the Beatitudes. Some have noted they're called the Beatitudes and not the do-attitudes. They're not statements of things to do. They're statements of what you should be. There's a huge difference there. This isn't a become this, do this. This is a picture of what his disciples should be. This is what they should look like. Jesus says blessed, a word that means happy. In fact, the Greek word throughout the New Testament points to a distinct religious joy that particularly comes from salvation. For example, I'll point you to Romans 4. This is what Paul writes. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. You see from Paul that he's not just talking about that you're blessed or like you're well off. He's not just talking about be happy about these things. He's pinpointing a specific joy that wells up within you when you know the depths of salvation. I deserve eternal damnation because of my sin. I'm separated from the eternal God, and yet Jesus Christ saved me. That wells up an emotion in us. Something I I do not deserve, something I have not earned, something I could not have accomplished on my own. It wells something up in us. It's a particular kind of joy. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he's saying something particular. This word poor is the same word translated as beggar in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke Luke 16. It's far more than just begging. It means to cower. It means to shudder. It means to be pulled back, to be totally afraid. Contextually, then, the poor in spirit points to people who have nothing. And specifically, it means people who have no righteousness, people who have no merit. That is to say, people who arrive before the eternal God and have nothing to earn entrance into his kingdom. I bring nothing to the kingdom. And to this, Jesus says, there's tremendous joy. There's a particular kind of joy about having nothing that allows entrance into his kingdom. Why? Because they know they're not good enough. Why? Because they know they're not sufficient. Why? Because they know they cannot earn the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's going to be about Jesus and not about them. It's not I earned it. It's not I worked for it. It's not I could be good enough for it. It's not that I can morally clean myself up just enough above culture to be acceptable to God. It's not my yeses or my good things outweigh my bad things. It's, God, I got nothing. I bring nothing to you. And that is what Jesus is looking for from his disciples. That's what wells up this particular kind of joy stemming from salvation. That's what he wants his disciples to be. Look at the next one. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's a particular kind of joy that wells up in us because of salvation that those who are mourning. And friends, this isn't about being sad. No, for a Jewish audience, it would conjure up imagery from the book of Ezra, from Ezekiel, from several of the prophets. And what the Jewish audience would hear, what they would recognize is this particular kind of mourning comes from recognizing that you are spiritually bankrupt. You're poor in spirit. You've got nothing. And that this kind of spiritual poverty has one source, and it's personal sin. So if you are willing to see your own sin, to recognize the grievousness of your sin, to mourn over your sin, and to recognize it is your sin that is bankrupting your soul, Jesus says you're blessed. He says it's going to well up in you a particular kind of joy stemming from salvation. And you're going to be comforted by that. We can keep going. We could walk all the way through the Beatitudes. But what I want you to get a hold of, what I want you to see is that Jesus is painting a completely countercultural picture of what it means to follow him. He's not going with the world. He's not going with other rabbis. He's not going with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's not going with make yourself look better. He's not saying muscle your way through it. He's not saying you're good enough, smart enough, and gosh gone at people like you. He's not building you up. No, what Jesus is putting before them is a theology that says it's not about doing good deeds. It's not about being strong. It's not about you. It's about him. And it's about his sufficiency. It's about the fact that Jesus Christ is enough. And that he wants his sufficiency to show through you. We follow on in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 13, we'll skip ahead a little bit. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is one message starting in the Beatitudes, starting with a you've got to be empty, you've got to be bankrupt, you can't do this on your own, your sufficiency cannot come from you. And you see that Jesus isn't giving us a list of do's and don'ts. He paints a picture of what a disciple should look like what they should be, but far more than that, he's showing them the why. Why are they to be different? Why did he make you a new creation? 
Why is it that it's not enough just to be a better person? Why is it not enough just to display a better morality than the world? Why? Because you're not a follower of Jesus, if that's what you're aimed at. You're a follower of a particular kind of philosophy of empowerment. And that's not Christianity. Jesus, following Jesus, is about recognizing that you have nothing and that you are spiritually bankrupt. And that in Jesus Christ and in him alone, you have everything. And that's what he wants you to put on a lampstand. That's what he wants to put on display for the world to see. That's the light that we shine. That's the saltiness that we offer. It's not a better morality. It's not a better set of right or wrongs. It's that I'm not enough and he is sufficient. Jesus is training up his disciples. He's showing them what it means to follow Jesus. Let's skip down to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What you find as you move through this sermon is Jesus now starts a section of, you have heard it said, but now I say to you. And remember, He's training his disciples. And what he's doing is he's showing them that it's not merely about following the letter of the law. Otherwise, he's giving you to-do lists. It's not just about rote obedience. It's not do this and don't do that. It's far more than that. It's about your heart. It's about the condition of your heart. For it's easy for most of us to not commit adultery. And we could feel really proud about that. We could feel really sufficient about that. We could high-five each other and be like, yeah, another week not cheating on my wife. I'm awesome. And in that moment, it would be our sufficiency on display. It would be my discipline, my accountability, my awesomeness going, nailed it. But what Jesus teaches his disciples is it's about the condition of my heart. It's not just about adultery. It's about not lusting. It's about what's going on, not just with my eyes, but what's going on with my head, what's going on with my heart, what's happening behind the scenes. See, Jesus isn't just interested in our rote obedience as if we could just walk through the motions and he's going to papally seal it and call it great. No, he's interested in your heart and the transformation of your heart, a transformation that happens when you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy and that your heart is wicked. Jesus would go on to apply this to sin. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He applies it to divorce. He applies it to taking oaths. He applies it to lawsuits. He applies it to giving. He applies it to loving everyone. He's not just giving you a rote to-do list. He's telling you, I care about the spiritual transformation of your heart that flows 
from you having a right understanding of who you are. He's transforming your heart. And he's transforming your life. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That whole phrase is full of statements. It's ripe and it's pregnant. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen. Jesus is saying, don't be a fake. Don't act like you can fake it. Don't do things just because people are watching. And there could not be a better quintessential 21st century statement than this. Don't Instagram your Bible if you're not reading it. I mean, we live in a culture that says, take a picture of it, shoot a selfie of it, make it all about you so you can testify, hey, guess what I'm looking, look what I'm seeing. Look what I'm doing right now. I'm in the Word. Here's my cup of coffee. That's the world we live in. And what Jesus is testifying to is like, are you kidding me? You think doing these rote actions, this rote obedience, is doing these things in front of people just as a show that you've got your act together is going to cut it? Do you think that's enough? Friends, the Bible doesn't call us to look like we've got our act together. In fact, it never tells us to look like we have our act together. No, the Bible actually very clearly testifies to the reality that, wait for it, you don't have your act together. So why would we testify to anything else? Jesus illustrates this, saying in verse 2, that when you give to the needy, and we should at least pause and say, Jesus says when you give to the needy, because he's clearly presuming that his disciples will give to needy people, different sermon, different day. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpets before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. Remember, Jesus is after a transformed heart. He's not after rote obedience. That does not mean that when you're giving an offering check at a church service, you need to look at the person next to you and be like, Hey, look, Elvis, and then dump it in the basket so nobody sees you. That's plumb ridiculous. It doesn't mean that you don't do things just because people are watching. What it does mean is that if you're doing things purposefully because people are watching, if you're calling attention to yourself, your heart has not been transformed. That you are about you and not about him. It's a warning. He's laying out these illustrations. He's training his disciples. What does a transformed heart look like? What does a transformed life look like? He's starting to create some divisions, some contrast between what you see in religious people and what you see in followers of Jesus Christ. 
And he carries that out talking about praying and fasting, which, by the way, he presumes we do. Jesus is training his disciples. He's showing them and he's illustrating for them what a transformed heart and what a transformed life looks like. That's what he's doing through the whole Sermon on the Mount. So where we're going to finish this morning is where Jesus finishes. Chapter 7, verse 24. This is how Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. What Jesus does here is he brings application to the entire Sermon on the Mount. What he does here is he brings it all together, saying, if you recognize your insufficiency, if you recognize your spiritually bankrupt condition, if you recognize it's not about you being good enough, it's not about you accomplishing things, it's not about you seeking a better morality, if you recognize that you are not enough and that Jesus is, and you put that on display, And if you recognize that I'm not after mere rule followers, but people who know my heart and live with a transformed heart, Jesus then says, you are a wise man and you have a solid foundation. But friends, we have to be so epically clear about this. Because this passage, like many other, if we peel it out of the Sermon on the Mound... We start to teach things like, when life gets tough, you may not stand. And that's not what this passage is pointing to. He's talking about, will you make it into the kingdom of heaven or won't you? He's not talking about what happens on a rainy day. He's not talking about, will your foundation stand before you, when you stand before the high king of heaven and he asks you, what have you done to inherit my kingdom? What will you stand on on that day? For that foundation is of far greater significance than how you handle a flood. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, everyone who's transformed by Jesus Christ, who understands that they're spiritually bankrupt, who mourns over their sin, if you fall in line with following Jesus. You are a wise man who built his house on a rock. And likewise, in verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be a foolish man who built his house on the sand and when the rain fell, And the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. If you live your life proclaiming your greatness and your deeds, if you believe that you are enough, and if you have believed that a tidied up version of you will inherit the kingdom, 
And if you understand the kingdom from your understanding and not as Jesus proclaimed it, you will fall. And this isn't a, you'll struggle a little bit when the rain comes. This is a statement that very much proclaims that when you stand before the God of eternity and you want entrance into the kingdom and your testimony is, but, but I went to church. Isn't that enough? Like, I, I, I took a meal to this guy once. Is that good? I, I was pretty good. You know, I stopped swearing in high school. And, you know, and every once in a while I'd put 10 bucks in the offering. I mean, is that, is that cutting it? Thank you. <laughs> Amen. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Jesus is clearly delineating at the end of the Sermon of the Mount what a follower looks like and what a pretender looks like. What a wise man looks like and what a fool looks like. What somebody who's trusted in Jesus Christ unto salvation looks like and what somebody who's just playing a game looks like. And he makes it very, very clear. And if you're with us this morning and you're wondering, how do I take this text? How do I apply it to my life? Let me give you this. If you've never trusted Jesus unto salvation, if you've never taken these words and applied them, if you've never realized that you're spiritually bankrupt, that your life isn't enough on your own, I would point you to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. For you are a sinner and you will have to answer for your sin. A sin that separates you from God. A sin that puts you in a place where you deserve punishment. And you can pay that punishment or somebody else can. But if that's the only standing you've got, your house will fall and the fall will be great. What the gospel proclamation says to us is that we are not good enough, that we're all in that place. And so we build our lives on Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus, seeking to become more and more and more and more like him, whether you're in day one or day 12,693, whether you're two steps into the process or most of the way done, Jesus calls you to know him better and to follow him more. And to that, I would tell you and call you into the book of Matthew. That in this season, we're encouraging our whole church to read through the book of Matthew prayerfully, saying, God, what would you have me do? How would you change my heart? What sin are you revealing into me? How should I live differently? Believing that he will transform you. Believing that he will shape you. That he will change you. And that he will make you more and more and more and more like him. Friends, in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus is training up his disciples. He's drawing a distinction between what a follower of Jesus looks like 
and what a pretender looks like. And as we walk through the gospel of Matthew, you'll start to realize the crowds fall away. They always do. And his followers press on and press on and press on. And the call gets harder and harder and harder. Jesus wasn't after easy followers. He wasn't lowering the bar to get everyone in. Let me pray for us. We'll be finished. Gracious Father, thank you for your word, that in your word we find truth. We find truth about Jesus Christ. We find truth about his life. We find truth about his ministry. We find truth about his purpose. And Jesus came to build disciples. And his disciples built disciples. And his disciples' disciples built disciples. And Father, we see a path and a pattern where you were calling all of us to lead transformed lives. Not becoming better people, but to submit ourselves to you. To submit ourselves to your salvation. To believe. Knowing that you would shape us, you would change us, and you would transform us. Father, I pray that if there are any amongst us this morning who have built their house on sand, Father, that you would put a heavy burden on their souls. Father, they wouldn't sleep. Father, that they would know that you are chasing them, that you are beckoning after them. That they would know that the God of eternity loves them so much that he sent his only begotten son. That whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And Father, if there are those of us who are following and struggling, would you just keep building us up and encouraging us on our path? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.